Hi, and welcome to Movements and Sounds, a podcast focusing on contemporary Indigenous musics and sounds in Australia and issues related to this topic. At SOAS Radio, we are excited to bring stories from the other side of the world to our studio in London. Thanks so much for listening to Movements and Sounds. I'm Charlotte, the facilitator of this podcast. It is important to know that I am a non-Indigenous person. However, I support decolonization and giving land back to Indigenous peoples. Today, I'm talking to Makesha. Makesha is a Durham-Ball, Mari and Tongan artist raised in a city we now call Sydney. She studies at NYU's Clive Davis Institute of Recorded Music and has performed around the world at events such as the Dubai Expo a few months ago or just like yesterday at Vivid Sydney. She has always been involved in community work and has released an EP titled Makesha and her latest single Brand New came out last year. And I'll give the floor to you. Thanks so much for having me, Charlotte. And of course, I would like to acknowledge country. I'm on Bidjigal country today and Charlotte is also on Gadigal country today. And we would just like to acknowledge the traditional owners. And yeah, it's important that we always acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded and that we are on Aboriginal land and this land always was and always will be Aboriginal land. So thanks so much for having me. Oh, thanks so much for being here. This is very exciting. I saw you perform yesterday at Vivid, such a great show, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But before before I'll go to that, maybe let's start with a sort of introductory question. How would you describe your musical sound? This is such a difficult question, and I, I honestly think my sound is developing and changing so quickly. Um, I think by virtue of living in different countries multiple months of the year, um, being exposed to so many different genres of music, it's constantly changing. But if I had to succinctly define my sound, I guess I would describe it as R&B, pop, with a little bit of neo-soul, and also just heavily informed by storytelling traditions of Indigenous cultures and also Pacific Islander cultures as well. Could you tell a little bit about the start of your career as a musician? Yeah, I, I've always been singing. I think I honestly came out of the womb. I came into the world singing. I was actually quite a shy kid growing up, so I didn't really perform much. I didn't really have much confidence to call myself a an artist or a singer um, until maybe 10-ish years ago, maybe even a little bit less than that when I was around 12, 13. And yeah, just started writing songs. I've always been surrounded by music. My dad had a Corey Radio hip hop show um, where he would DJ and host and I would go in on a Friday night and listen to the music. And um, sometimes I would do the introductions on the radio as well. And yeah, family barbecues and stuff, there's always someone with a speaker or someone with a guitar singing songs, you know, it's just part of the culture. And I think that musical instinct was just ingrained in me growing up. But then, I don't know, becoming a teenager, writing my own stuff, and then going on to perform my own original music for community and now the broader community at gigs like Vivid, which is pretty cool. And yeah, starting to... Um, reached those international audiences as well in my time uh, in Turtle Island, also known as the United States, and recently um, just got back from Berlin as well. So slowly, slowly venturing out into the world and making connections, finding family and community in other places too. So you had your show at Vivid yesterday. How did it go for you? It was just the best. It's It was probably one of my first gigs probably the first gig since the pandemic has been over where I've been able to have my whole family all of my friends and community there to support and it was also so nice just to see people who were at attending Vivid wander in and kind of have a suss out of what was happening and it was just so much fun and I, I put a lot of pressure on myself to do well at those things and you know you prepare as much as you can you rehearse as much as you can but when it happens it just happens and you know you get stuck into the flow and it was just nice to have so many smiling faces and yeah, just mates there. Is it special for you to play at an event? Like it's sort of, it's a really big event. Uh, it's known internationally um, and in particular mm -hmm. at a location such as Darling Harbour. How is that for you? 
It's just so, I don't know, thinking about it gives me a warm feeling, just knowing that my community, my home city, my hometown, if you can call Sydney a hometown, it's just nice to know that, you know, the community and events like Vivid want me to be a part of that and allow, you know, space and give me a platform to share my music, share my stories, share the stories of my community as well. And it's just... I know, just get a warm, fuzzy feeling thinking about it. Mm. <laughs> so you're not at all intimidated. Oh, absolutely. I am absolutely intimidated. <laughs> I like can't you can ask my family. I was probably like the most stressed, like horrible person to be around last week. But now that it's done, I just like a massive weight has been lifted off me and I'm I'm a happy person now. <laughs> We talk a lot about political engagement mm -hmm. and as a listener of your music, I would say it takes a moment to realize that you sing about First Nations experiences in your songs sometimes. And I remember even from your show yesterday, you almost apologized when you got a bit political and, you know, when you were dedicating the song to your friend. So it's, it's in there very subtly. Why do you choose for this very subtle approach? Yeah, I think I'm I'm definitely feeling this space out and I've always been in my personal life, in my community life, I've always been very very strong on on certain issues when it comes to deaths in custody, when it comes to high rates of incarceration, when it comes to just overall injustice and disenfranchisement of First Nations peoples and communities, and I'm always very outspoken about that, but I guess in my creative space particularly at shows like Vivid, I'm also aware that people are not necessarily opting in to hear those things. And I just have an awareness and a sensitivity to that. And that doesn't mean that I'm not going to talk about those issues, but I will also have a sensitivity, I guess, towards people that maybe didn't want to hear something super political or super heavy about the reality of what's happening in Australia. And so I just take a moment not to apologize, but just to thank people for being present in that moment for me. And just to say, thank you for allowing me to take space. Thank you for allowing me to discuss the topic that is really heavy and is not nice to hear about in your personal time. So I don't know, at my own shows where people are coming to see me, I don't do that because I know people know what, what they're signing up for. But at public events, I always just take that moment just to say thank you, just so people don't leave feeling confronted or like have a bad feeling with associated with those topics. Because the reality is we need to be having those conversations. And so by me thanking someone, for being present in that moment with me, maybe they'll go away thinking, oh, okay, that did feel heavy, but I also feel good that I allowed Makesha to have that space and take that moment. Can you tell something about your song, Tell Me Why? Yeah, totally. So that was a song that I wrote in high school after, you know, you, you have those conversations with your, I even forget what they're called, like careers advisor. And you start having conversations about what you want to do after school, how to prepare for that. And I had aspirations to study at NYU, which I don't know, for some people is probably seems like a big thing. And, and to me, it is a big thing. But I knew that I was going to work hard. I knew that it was something that I wanted and something that I was dedicated to. And I guess a lot of people, uh, a few people, I should say, had I don't know, they just it was very clear that they didn't believe that I was capable of doing that. And that frustrated me because I came from a community of strong Indigenous women who were like, of course, of course you want to go study at New York. Of course, we're going to make it happen. Of course, we're going to be here to support you and back you in that journey. And yeah, I guess just confronted with that different perspective or that different expectation from people outside of my world, or well, still were very much in my world, but outside of my community who just didn't had that same vision for my life that I did and my community community did and that frustrated me and I saw the same for many other Indigenous students as well around me and so tell me why I came from a place where I was just angry I didn't under quite understand why people thought I was capable of less particularly because I am so hardworking and I saw myself as someone who was super invested in my school community as well and I thought that maybe people would have faith in me and so yeah that was just a moment that I took to express those feelings and, and hopefully encourage people to lean into that conversation of why maybe people think less of First Nations, of young Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. 
So when you said people did not expect you to actually do that, to accomplish that. Uh, so that came from mainly outside of your community. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and it was mainly people. Yeah, mainly microaggressions. Like maybe you should have a plan B or maybe you should try something else. Do you really think that's the greatest, that's the best path for you? And I was, I'm like, I was very certain. I still, very, I still am very certain like five, six years later. So I think that says something. Uh, did you get responses to tell me why of people who have experienced similar things in life? Yeah, I think, I don't know. I think people just are grateful that it exists and that it says a lot of things that a lot of people don't feel the strength to say. And I guess as a grassroots artist, someone who's completely independent and pushing their music out as well, I I would like to see this song reach you know more audiences and be have more exposure to other communities as well because as much as this song is an anthem for my community I also think it's a message that needs to be heard by people outside of my community and yeah I guess I would just like to see it be heard by more audiences. Your career is going really strong, I'd say. You have won and have been nominated for a number of prizes, uh, such as the Professional Development Awards, for which you were a finalist. Um, and last year, you won the FBI Radio's Next Big Thing Awards. In 2019, you were NADOC Youth of the Year. Quite some accomplishments. Um, you were even on Australian X Factor a few years ago. What does, what does this mean for you, all this recognition? I'm totally not one to, you know, strive after awards or, yeah, just chase the award itself or a trophy or a title. I think the biggest thing for me each time I'm awarded with one of these uh, awards or recognized, the yeah, the biggest thing for me is just the fact that my community is proud of me and that people thought that I was worthy or I deserve to have this recognition. So for me, it's more of an encouragement. And for me, it's kind of like a pat on the back or a good job or a hug from my community just to say, keep going. And I think those little moments of encouragement are so valuable um, as an ind independent artist, because it often feels like you're not sure how much, like who your music is reaching or how much ground you're taking or how much you're growing and evolving as an artist. So those little moments where you get to stop and go, oh, okay, I'm glad that my community is proud of what I'm I'm doing and I'm glad that my community is proud of what I'm saying and how I'm expressing that in my music. In your Natick Award speech, you mentioned that your grandmother, your, your nan, was also a singer, but she did not have the mm -hmm. chance to pursue a career in that direction. Can you tell something yeah. about your family and about the ways in which they have been part of your music career? Funnily enough, I never met my my grandmother, my mom's mom. My my grandma actually passed away. My mom was 17. But strangely, I feel like this weird support from her. I feel like there's little moments where I'm like, hmm, someone's looking out for me. And there's moments where I feel like as well, I don't know, like a warmth in like thinking about that I get to pursue something that my nan didn't get to do. Sorry, I'm just getting a bit emotional thinking about it. It's it's nice to think that there's been generations of people who have carried that musical tradition, who have carried that inspiration in their heart, and that now I'm able to live that out and write music and perform for people and release music and, yeah, do all the things that they didn't get to do because, you know, life didn't allow them to. They had a family to look after. They had bills to pay. They had by virtue of, yeah, the circumstances, they weren't able to do music. And so I think, I don't know, I feel like I have a lot of guardian angels looking out for me. Yeah, you've uh, you've been involved in several social justice initiatives, such as the mm -hmm. Just Reinvest, which focuses on redirecting funding from prisons into communities. You were co-founder of the Kimberwali, also known as Aboriginal Centre for Excellence in Western Sydney. Can you tell something about how you got involved in these initiatives and what your role was? My involvement in activism and the Aboriginal community has always come from my mum. She has always been a super strong advocate and someone who has worked in community since the very beginning. And she's not originally from Sydney. Um, our family's from uh, Rockhampton in central Queensland. And so all of our family's still up there. And yeah, there's just like a really strong Indigenous community 
um, a lot of aunties and uncles who are fighting for native title and land rights. And so I guess mum always grew up in a space where she, yeah, like supporting community and, and being part of community was just how things were. And she's kind of brought my sister and I up in that same kind of way. So growing up in community, I guess you just have a responsibility to look out for people and to do your part. And through a lot of these initiatives, particularly Just Reinvest, I'm very passionate about is, yeah, just making sure, holding the government accountable and holding um, large corporations accountable for the funds that they are acquiring and, and how they use those funds. Yeah. And just being part of that next generation to come up, learn from our elders, learn from the leaders in our community and just support in whatever way we can. And you said your family is from Queensland. Do you perform for your community over there as well? I actually don't. When we go up to Rocky, it's usually like holiday time. I don't know. It's like I, I switch my phone off. It's just aunties, uncles, cousins hanging out. It's so hot. You just stay inside in the aircon and it's always Christmas time. We go up for Christmas. So I don't know. I actually don't perform much up that way, but maybe maybe in the future I'll have to. <laughs> you, you mentioned your your dad working for Corey Radio, of course. We've mentioned your grandmother. Are others in your, your family or close connections involved in the performing arts as well? Honestly, not in a like explicit way. There's no, we don't really have any, any, you know, musicians, any guitarists or singers in our family. I just think everyone has a love for music and everyone, yeah, just loves using music as a tool to bring people together and to have a good time. Back to your, to the initiatives uh, we talked about earlier. So you see it as a responsibility. Can you tell a little bit about like the actual, what were the tasks? Like what were you doing as a person on a very individual level? Can you give an example? Yeah, honestly, as a young person, I'm 21. So I, I feel like I'm kind of an adult. I'm starting to, I don't know, get some of those adult responsibilities, but I still feel like a kid and there's still so much to learn. So honestly, my role in these spaces is absolutely to contribute and to bring a young person's perspective into these spaces. But I think my priority personally, when I enter these spaces is just to learn, to sit back and to listen to what the community leaders and elders have to say, and just being a sponge. Cause I think absolutely it's important for me to have my say and to do my part. And there are moments and there are times for that, but I think my main role in these spaces is just to listen and to be a student and to earn my stripes. Right after the Black Lives Matter uprisings in 2020, I read a quote by you on social media, which reads, this country is founded on the stolen lands of Aboriginal people. We really need to look at our country and stop dusting things under the rug. Guilt is not productive. We need to start getting comfortable with being uncomfortable and start accepting our ignorance. Now, two years later, how would you reflect back on that time and on your own thoughts then? Mm. And have you seen changes happen since then? I definitely have seen change. I've just spent roughly nine months away from out, like outside of the country, outside of Australia, and pretty disconnected from community and family and just the Australian public in general. Um, for the last nine months and even just being back I've been back for a week and a half now and just there's like I don't know a, a general acceptance I guess of Indigenous cultures and I see that that's celebrated quite a lot um, more in comparison to a lot of other countries and so I think that that's a strength that has been changing and evolving and becoming stronger and stronger in Australia but I still sense that there's just a massive reluctance to have frank conversations about the disparities that exist in, in First Nations communities and I guess the inter intergenerational trauma, the inequalities that still exist in those communities. So in some ways, you know, coming back to Australia, it was really beautiful to just feel like there's cultural cultural all around and people celebrate First Nations cultures, but there's also it's kind of feels one-sided. There's another side of that conversation that needs to happen that still isn't happening. 
And yeah, I think there's still growth. I think people have become, I don't know if it was funny when you were reading that quote, I do think people have become comfortable in the discomfort, but I'm not sure if they've done that in the right way. I think people are comfortable in being ignorant and comfortable in in being cancelled or accused or challenged, but I don't think people are comfortable with the discomfort in themselves because I don't think that there's any want or no one feels a responsibility. Well, not no one, but a lot of people don't feel a responsibility to learn about the realities and um, the inequalities that exist. So in many ways, yeah, I think that we there have been steps forward, but also there are there have been steps back and there's still so many larger steps that need to take place. Can you give an example or or some some situation? Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Like what what have yeah. you seen or experienced that made you makes you feel this way? Yeah, I think something that has changed in a positive way is that people have an awareness that they're ignorant, but then the way it's gone the other way is that people are okay with that. And they're kind of like, oh, well, it's not my responsibility, so it's okay. There's no personal investment or there's no personal drive to feel like they want to delve in and critique why the system is how it is. And it is absolutely not exclusive to First Nations communities. There are so many other communities that are disenfranchised and pushed pushed aside by the government and So I think it's a larger conversation. It doesn't have to be specifically about First Nations communities. Obviously, there are specific um, things that only happen in First Nations communities. And obviously, we have a unique position being the traditional custodians of this country. And so obviously, that has, has to have its own space. But also, that being said, I think there's a much larger conversation just generally about the way the government works, or even just society and the community works around ignorance and responsibility to community I think that there's something massively that needs to shift there yeah yeah you mentioned government now this is really interesting uh, at this time here in Australia as government has just changed into to labor and one of the first things the new prime minister did was saying that he's going to endorse the Uluru statement in full what are your thoughts on that this is a big topic I realize (laughs) yeah but I love it and I'm totally not equipped to be having the conversation specifically about the Uluru statement and I think that that's an important step forward that there's massive visibility for First Nations communities I feel like um in this in this last election campaign and the swearing in of a lot of First Nations peoples into into parliament and I think that that's massive that just the pure presence of First Nations peoples in government is so, so important and something that should should absolutely be celebrated. But there are also so many things to do specifically with land management and the environment that the government also is just severely letting not only First Nations communities down, but just any Australian citizen or anyone living in this country with the continuation of fracking of sacred sites or even just fracking in general mining in general. These are things that I don't think a lot of people really, I don't, I don't know. I think I haven't been so much in touch with the community on the ground here. So I can't speak to whether people are having awareness of this or not, but it feels like to me, it's like, hello, everybody. This is like a massive, massive, massive issue that we should all be like really, really worried about and quite maybe, maybe even enraged or frustrated or passionate about and I just don't think that a lot of people have an awareness that these things are happening or maybe they're not aware of how one impacts sacred sites and I think um, in many ways this election has shown a lot of important steps forward but also I think a lot of important issues around the management of land have also just been dusted under the rug. Yeah so I guess I would like to see a stronger movement, not just from the from young people, not just for from climate activists, but just from the Australian public in general, to want to see the ceasing of fracking and mining and destruction of sacred sites and Aboriginal land and our Australian environment, our backyard, our home. These are the, these are the places where we can find peace and sanctuary and be with nature, and they're being destroyed. And I think they're doing it in a really sneaky way. Mm. Um, and the Australian public doesn't entirely know what's happening or the weight. They don't, I don't think they understand the weight of 
these actions and how it will, I was going to say how irreversible they are because mm. they are quite literally irreversible once yeah. once that land is destroyed and those sacred sites are destroyed there's no way to get that back yeah in what ways do you think things like digital activism contributes to the conversation on social justice issues it's hard to know honestly i think uh, blm showed us that you know a, lo a whole lot of digital advocacy or protest can happen but then things even like the black square can just become totally redundant and just unnecessary and completely unproductive as well so I'm not sure I, I pick my moments where I want to use social media to say something and usually that's something that I feel very strongly about so for me it's mainly just about using my platform and using my space to yeah take those moments to be outspoken and maybe even a little bit too forward or full on when I talk about these things, but I don't know. I think it's just about that responsibility again. And I think there are moments where social media can really help. And then there's moments as well where I can just totally become counterproductive and do the exact opposite of what you wanted it to do. How would you describe counterproductivity? What happens to the content if you, if you yeah. feel like it's counterproductive? I'm trying to remember the word. It's like, fake fake activism where it's like oh performative activism where people use social media and as a platform to advocate or to protest something when in reality they're they've copied a caption from someone else's page and ripped a ripped an image from I don't know the news or some first nations page and reposted it and gone this is what I think and then in real life you approach them with a the conversation and they just have absolutely no clue. And so, I don't know, it's important that that awareness is being spread, but also like what's the point of sharing information when you aren't able to support that with real conversation or real action? I think that's what a lot of Black communities, what a lot of First Nations um, communities are asking as well is absolutely we want support, but what's the point of you looking good on social media by being woke? And then when it comes to actually doing something, when it comes to voting, when it comes to donating to First Nations and Black community organizations, when it comes to actually walking the walk, people just don't do that. And I think that's where the problem lies. It turns something that could be really productive and such a powerful tool into something that just becomes completely redundant and meaningless, honestly. Yeah. It models this false position or role of what an activist should be. I don't know. And then even then, a lot of people don't like that title anymore because it's been so overused and used in the wrong ways by other people in, I don't want to say the community, but other people in society. Back to your, your studies. We've already mentioned you study at NYU at the Clive Davis <laughs> Institute of Recorded Music. First of all, maybe what's it like for you to study there? How's your experience? I just finished my third year. So I feel like I've, I'm pretty settled in now and it definitely feels like Definitely family vibes. It's a pretty small program, not many um, students in each cohort. Yeah, so it just feels like a really chill family kind of vibes. But I remember when I first got there, there was definitely a big culture shock, a little bit from American culture itself, but mainly just from people's ignorance of who Aboriginal people are and then also who Pacific Islander people are, because I'm also Tongan. And I guess just navigating a lot of those conversations because in America it's very much about what you look like and I'm very clearly a brown person and so I would meet people and they would be like so what are you and I would explain I'm Aboriginal and Tongan and they just have no absolutely no idea about what that is or people would have really really shallow kind of perceptions of who Aboriginal people were who Pacific Islanders were and are And I just, I don't know, I found a lot of people drawing comparison with like The Rock or I don't know, just like a lot of really bizarre stereotypes and random things that I just never knew I could ever hear. I've gotten Chipotle sauce as well as a Polynesian sauce. So lots of really bizarre, weird, wonderful and colorful interpretations of my culture. And I think that for me was probably one of the biggest challenges was One, having people understand my accent, which I don't think is very, I actually probably don't have a very strong Australian accent. And then just also understanding my background and 
just a lot of people figuring out which box to put me in, but the box that I fit in supposedly just didn't exist in their mind. So I definitely feel like I found my people now, at least the people in my community at school. I have a few like Aussie friends as well in the city. I found my safe spaces and those have been, yeah, just nice places to hide away from the rest of the city. <laughs> so yeah, you have experienced life on Turtle Island, USA which like Australia is another place with a dominant settler society. In what ways do you see or experience either commonalities or differences in attitudes towards indigenous peoples and cultures? In comparison to Australia, the States is just so much worse off in a lot of ways, but also just completely the same in a lot of ways as well. There's just a massive erasure of native peoples themselves in history narratives there's a narrative that's taught in school that native people died in in a war like after the dutch colonized or something it's just like a really bizarre narrative that just it couldn't be further from the truth so there's just a lot of people who have never met native american people or indigenous people at all in my spaces for a lot of people i was the first indigenous person that they've ever met in their life and that to me is bizarre but yeah i don't know in a lot of ways i found community in uh the native american and indigenous community in new york city and for, for me that's been a safe space just because obviously our experiences are so similar and our experiences at predominantly white institutions are also shared so I definitely have found community with Native American students at NYU, but but also, I don't know, just generally in the States, it's just different. I don't know how to explain it or quite know how to articulate that just yet, but there's just uh, an ignorance on another level over there that people just don't know much about anything outside of their own experience in general. So I think that's something that I learned very quickly when I got there as well. You just mentioned the idea of white institutions. Now you seem very, from an outsider perspective, you seem very comfortable in uh, navigating <laughs> through white institutions. You're, you're doing very, very great <laughs> on that front. But what is it, what is it like for you? Or how would you say, how have you been able to sort of enhance white institutions and find your way there? I mean, I grew up going to school at a, predom a predominantly white school. And so from the very beginning, I think that was just something that I was forced to navigate and that I did as a kid. So that in itself is a privilege that a lot of people don't have. If you can call it a privilege, I don't know. It was, it was a good school. So I was very lucky to have a very good education and have access to people who could support me in that application process to NYU and just a really strong support network, even like an Aboriginal support network at my school as well for a lot of the Indigenous students. So just grew up with a lot of support and a lot of privilege that a lot of other students and a lot of other kids don't have. And so that must be acknowledged. And I think that was the one thing that enabled me to apply and get accepted into NYU, but then also be in that space and navigate that as well. And my mum, has lived her whole life working absolutely for Aboriginal organizations, but having to navigate a lot of white spaces as well, a lot of very corporate rich white male dominated industries as well. And so I've learned a lot from her and how she's navigated those spaces. I don't know. I also have a problem with, you know, like having the conversation around how First Nations peoples, how black and brown people enhance those institutions as well because it almost feels transactional it's like institutions saying okay by virtue of us accepting you you need to bring your title you need to bring your ethnicity you need to bring your minority to the university so we can exploit that as a tool to to say that we're woke and to say that they're we're inclusive and I don't know particularly well any any large white institutions do this and are guilty at this but I guess the bigger they get, the more problematic it becomes because the more exploitative it becomes and the more that they are profiting, I guess, off this narrative and off this um, facade that they're creating for their school. So I think obviously Black and Brown and First Nations students, Native American students enhance absolutely the experience and the educational experience, not only of other students, but of professors as well. But again, it's problematic because we're students. We shouldn't be teaching other people 
about, you know, the injustices that we've experienced or we shouldn't be teaching other students why they can't use that word or why they shouldn't say that or why they shouldn't treat such and such like this way and then this other person like that. I think it becomes problematic because then we have this expectation to be teaching and bringing something to, to the table when we should be the ones learning and, you know, soaking up the information and not the other way around. So I don't know, it becomes challenging. Yeah, it seems very, a sort of conflicted situation. You, you can yeah, yeah, it's really complex. And I think, yeah, it's hard to make a really strong statement about it because obviously I want to contribute to the NYU community. Of course, I want people to know more about First Nations peoples and communities, not only just in Australia, but also amplify those voices of Native American students in the university as well. But at the same time, like, I should also just have the right to be a student and just to be like, hey, I actually just want to hang out today and I want to learn and I want to be a sponge. And I don't feel like being an unofficial professor today, teaching my peers about what they should and shouldn't say, you know? Yeah. And I suppose it's not just educational institutions, but big platforms or venues like I remember you said yesterday from your performance, you performed at the Sydney Opera House when you were really quite young, like you were only 15, right? I suppose, yeah, inclusions of First Nations performers does something to that institution as well. Totally. Yeah. And I think it's absolutely, like, I'm not saying that that people shouldn't be intentional about involving First Nations peoples in projects and events, but just doing that in a way that's respectful and culturally respectful as well. Like if you're going to hire a First Nations artist, just hire them for, for them. And absolutely, it's important that they're Indigenous and that's that's a massive part of who I am and my artistry, but it should be my choice whether I choose to bring that into my performance or whether I choose to speak on that or, you know, how, how I use my identity and how I use my experience to inform that. I don't think that that should be dictated by the event organizers. I think it becomes problematic when they're like, when people are instructing things to, you know, ask for it to be more indigenous or to present in a certain way or to look a certain way for the institution. I think that's when it becomes problematic. And I guess I'm just lucky that I have a massive awareness of that and I'm able to squash it as soon as it happens and just do my thing. Yeah, and from our conversation now, this seems a very important component of your work as well, because when I look at your songs, I've mentioned it before, it's not very political at first instance. Uh, mm -hmm. So for example, your latest single, Brand New, can mm -hmm. you tell something about it, about the song? Yeah, yeah. So that one was actually a COVID track. I was just writing, writing and writing and writing and writing during lockdown. And that was one of the songs that came out of that season. And luckily Sydney wasn't in lockdown too much. So I was able to sneak out, uh, not sneak out, but restrictions were lifted and I was able to be in the studio with producers, record this song and release it. I think it was, a, yeah, a while ago now, but yeah, it was just one of those, those moments where I was able in a super, super heavy time where there were a lot of heavy conversations happening around Aboriginal deaths in custody and high incarceration rates and Black Lives Matter in a time that was so heavy, I was able just to create music and amongst that chaos and just express what I wanted to express. And I have found in the past two years, I've been writing less political stuff just because I think there have been so many conversations that I've had about this stuff. And so I feel like I've gotten it all out of, out of my mind, out of my space. And I've been able to, yeah, just express that with other people. And so not much of that has been left over for my music, but I'm sure that'll change in the next couple of months. I, I kind of sense it's already changing a little bit, but yeah, I don't know. I think the power of my music, I think is that Like you said, at first sight, it's not inherently political, but I think by virtue of it just being uh, an authentic expression of me, it becomes political because it's a First Nations woman expressing herself in whatever way she wants. And I think that there's power in that. And I think absolutely it's important for me to have political songs that speak about what I think it's important, but it's also, I love just writing sappy R&B jams that just feel good to listen to and they just feel good to sing. And I think that's also part of what I see my responsibility as an artist is just to bring people peace and joy or chill vibes, like whatever that may be. I think that's also, you know, another side of what I think my responsibility is. 
How have people or audiences responded to your music overseas, like in the States or like in Dubai, where you performed a few months ago for the Dubai Expo? Honestly, I don't think that people overseas have been able to get the full exposure of, of who I am as an artist. There's a lot of spaces, particularly at Dubai Expo, people are there to have a good time. And so I absolutely shy away from having those super strong political conversations. But it's been, I don't know, it's been nice to just be in those spaces and to have those moments where I can just sing upbeat super happy songs and that's even been nice for me because it just feels lighter and I don't know it just feels good so yeah but I don't know I'm hoping in the next year or so I'll feel a little bit more bold to step in those spaces and to have more frank conversations with people and to perform my more political songs I guess But yeah, I think it's a growth thing. I'm taking things a step at a time. I don't want to get ahead of myself and put myself in situations where I'm not equipped to do the moment justice or to say what I need to say contextually so that people will understand the message that I'm actually trying to speak. And then also thinking about whether international audiences are the ones that I want to reach that message as well. I feel like as much as I love traveling and I love spending time overseas, I do see my career and a lot of my purpose being tied to home, being tied to Australia. And so, I don't know, still navigating those spaces and trying to figure out exactly where it's appropriate. Yeah, absolutely. So you really sort of adjust your tone and the choice of songs to the space you're in at the moment. Absolutely. And it's just about productivity for me. Like there's no point in me going into spaces super strong when that audience is just not ready to receive that. So it's about, yeah, just catering my set to the context, really. Yeah. One very popular First Nations artist at the moment you've worked with is Barca. You're mm -hmm. featured on the track Comeback, and it's yeah. like a song with such beautiful lyrics. Um, I have them here. D do you want to recite the lyrics or shall I, shall I read them out? You can recite yeah. them. <laughs> <laughs> so it says, we're black and strong and powerful. Melanin shine beautiful. Resilient, we made it this far. We done, made it through the dark. You're looking at the real monarch. How did this collaboration come about? And what was this experience like for you? Yeah, so this was another project that happened, I think, about a year ago, and Barker was secretly working away at this EP, and I don't know, she just messaged me on Instagram, and she was like, hey, sis, I have this song, I would love for you to sing on it, um, she sent me over the track, I loved it. And literally in this very room that I'm sitting in right now, I have my little studio set up, and I just got my microphone out and recorded, wrote a couple of ideas, recorded them, sent them back to her. And she was like, sis, I love this. Um, the next week we're in the studio. I literally rocked up, had a little quick yarn with her and the producer, recorded the vocals in like half an hour and that was it, it was done. And for me, it, it just felt so easy and it just felt so right and it felt natural. And that's not something that you have the privilege of experiencing all the time as a songwriter and an artist, but there was something about what the song is saying and what purpose it's serving for our community, specifically our Black women in our communities. It just felt right. I don't know a single song that exists that is for our women only. And yeah, I just had so much to say. As soon as I got writing, it was like, it just poured out of me like, like water. It just felt right. That's what, that's the only way I can explain it. And yeah. I'm so Yeah, I'm so honored and it just feels, yeah, super surreal that I'm part of that project and get to have my little moment to say what I want to say as well on her project. And the fact that she gave me space to do that as well was just a massive honor. Amazing. Another project you've been involved in is the Deadly Hearts Walking Together compilation, um, mm -hmm. for which you covered How Deep Is Your Love by the Bee Gees. Could you explain a bit what this project is and what was your experience like to be involved? Yeah, so Deadly Hearts is a compilation album by ABC Music and it's an album of covers, Australian covers, done by Indigenous Australian artists and they release 
an album every year during Nainok week. And I was already a massive fan of the Deadly Hearts compilation album before I even got asked to be on this one. And so, I don't know, just so many cool creative covers have come out of these albums. And I actually helped produce the Deadly Hearts 2 album. I used to work at ABC Music as well. So a little, a little plug there, but it just, again, it just felt so natural and it just felt so right. This song as well happened right during BLM. And when ABC Music reached out to me, I just kind of had a moment. I sat down and I was like, okay, what does the world need to hear right now? What does my community need to hear right now? And there was just a whole lot of pain and a whole lot of hurting and a whole lot of heaviness happening and so I just felt like I needed to take a moment to do something light and that would lift people's spirits and this song for me always does that particularly the PJ Morton version and so I jumped in the studio with uh, Ralph who is part of my band and has been playing with me and producing my stuff and teaching me since I was literally nine and um, another producer and the How Deep Is Your Love track that's on the album was done in one take. We, we got into the, the studio and it was just, I don't know, I was just super intentional about bringing that energy that it was just light, no heavy, no expectation, no pressure whatsoever. We got in there, we set up, we honestly spent maybe 90% of the time talking and setting up all the gear and testing the microphone and whatever. And then we did like little rehearsal and we're like, you know what, let's just go for a take. I was literally sitting down on the couch, which for me, like I'm super picky about my vocals. I love standing up. I love being focused. I love being in the zone, but I was literally on the couch, like slouched over with my microphone. And I was like, let's just go for a take. Why not? And we did a take and I said to my producer, I was like, okay, I'll come in tomorrow to read you the vocals packed up I went in the next day I got to the studio and we, we we sat there and we listened to the track and we said to each other actually I don't think we need to re-record these vocals I think that that reflects the moment that reflects exactly the sentiment of what we were trying to go for and so I literally went to the studio for like half an hour we had a chat had a coffee and then I went home and then we sent that recording off to ABC Music and that's what is on the, the album now that's amazing <laughs> And I just think it was beautiful. I, I loved that it was just casual. There was no pressure. It was light in the moment. We were having fun and it just felt right. And what are you working on at the moment? I am writing so much. I've never written so much in my whole life and it's so exciting to me. And I think that it's been a nice, a nice shift, honestly, being away from home and not being able to perform. I've been forced to express myself through writing and that's just so exciting to me. But it also means I have so many songs that I want to release and record. And so that's, I guess, what I'll be working on in the next two months while I'm home is just recording stuff. And hopefully, hopefully I'm holding myself accountable to it. We'll be releasing a couple of singles as well in the next couple of months. Amazing. Yeah, I think I heard a, a, a little sneak peek or I had a little sneak peek yesterday. Uh-huh. <laughs> I, yeah, I was yeah. Uh, loved it. <laughs> Thank so, yeah, you. I'm things, glad. Good things coming. It's always good news. I totally use gigs as like a way to test songs. And I always ask my friends afterwards, okay, which one, which one was the best? And whichever one it is, it's always usually a trend. I go, okay, that's going to be the next one that I release. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And can you can you say a little bit like what's what's the verdict <laughs> from the yesterday? verdict? Honestly, okay. So there's one called Lean on You, which is my most recent one that I have recorded. I think that it's going to be one of them. But there's an, also another one called Scene that I'm thinking will also be another single. Mm. So who knows? <laughs> yeah, we have to keep following you. So yeah, that brings me to actually my final question for listeners out there. How can they follow you online? I'm honestly everywhere that you could possibly find anybody. <laughs> uh, my music's on all streaming platforms, Spotify, Apple Music, Deezer, wherever you find your music. I'm also on Instagram, uh, Twitter, Facebook under I am Acacia. Yeah, if you guys stay in touch, then hopefully you guys will be getting some new music soon. It's been a minute, so I'm really excited to get in the studio, record some vocals, take some photos, do some cover art. Fingers crossed, hopefully sometime soon. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. Thank you so much for, for this time. Thanks so much for having me, Charlotte. And I think, yeah, what 
what this podcast covers is super important and I'm super grateful that you're documenting these histories and this particular context, this time, these artists. Yeah, I think it's going to serve as a really, really important archival resource for our communities in Australia as well. And for listeners, I hope you enjoyed Makesha's story as much as I did. Here's her latest single, Brand New. I shouldn't be feeling this way But you came in my life and opened my eyes You made me feel some type of way I cannot describe, I'm writing these lies Cause truth is I ain't got no clue What it is to be loved or be someone's boo I'm only praying that it's you I'm hanging around cause you make me feel new Like old times, wish we could rewind You make me feel new Stop wasting my time, come and be mine You make me feel new Like old times, wish we could rewind you Don't see me For all that I am And all that I've done I don't mean to sound petty But I'm deserving more You promised me more Cause truth is I ain't got no clue What it is to be loved Or be someone's boo I'm only praying that it's you I'm hanging around Cause you make me feel in my time come and be mine you make me feel new like old times wish we could rewind you make me feel new yeah, yeah. you make me feel Thanks for listening to Movements and Sounds. This is a not-for-profit podcast. However, thanks to the SOAS Student Enterprise Fund, for every episode a donation will be made to SeedMob, an indigenous-led organization in Australia fighting for climate justice. Find out more about this incredible organization on seedmob.org.au. See you at the next episode.